The brothers wish. The brothers wish, brothers wish. The brothers wish. The brothers. You're now listening to Greg. It's the brothers. Hey everybody. This is Greg with the brothers wish number 143 coming to you from my mom's bedroom in College Station. No, not College Station. I'm in Waco. I live in Cossage, but I'm in Waco right now. So we're here on the compound with the rest of the Branch Davidians. Now, um, it is a very special episode because we have somebody we haven't seen for a very long time. And obviously, I'm talking about Nick. No, I'm just kidding. I'm talking about Alex Hart. <laughs> Say hello to the people. Hello. Oh, man. Yeah, so in my uh, contacts, it always says Alex Seattle. Uh, but you're obviously not Alex Seattle anymore. Now you're Alex Oregon, right? Yeah, down in the Portland area for a while now. All right, rock and roll. Do you feel like it seeped into you? I mean, you were already pretty hipster before. <laughs> oh, I, I try to stay away from the uh, weird part of Portland. Which is all of Portland, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Just within the city limits. I get it, I get it. All right, cool. All right, so also we have with us uh, the aforementioned Nick Arellano. Yeah, also not uh, in College Station uh, in <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> but you're in your mom's bedroom, so it's all good. Uh, no, but not close. Oh, just me. Okay. <laughs> just you. <laughs> oh, I hope you guys enjoy this audio in this tiny, echoey room with this horrible headset. So I'm sure we'll get uh, zero complaints about this one. But uh, we, were, we were just talking about before. Uh, we missed one not so long ago, although I think we had a filler set in but anyway the last time i missed two in i'm not saying rapid succession like within two months of each other i got a lot of complaints so uh, i figure i better get in here and record this thing for you guys's so let's get the uh let's get the uh, vegetables out of the way so we jump to dessert we have some new patrons so you go to patreon.com forward slash the brothers wisp chuck a couple of bones chunk us a couple of bones chuck us you know either way i guess it's more chuck is probably the word uh, but uh, you get access to the patron-only Slack. So not only supporting the podcast with its lovely audio that you're enjoying right now, uh, but you get access to all these smart guys in a very uh, friendly uh, environment. And we have three new faces. So we have Simon Pierce, we have Tyler Lane, and we have Will. And when he signed up, he didn't have his last name in there. So, um, you know, any Will that you've ever met, it could be that guy you don't know. That's the uh, the fun part about it. It's kind of like hide and seek. Uh, let's see. What else do we have? We have some sponsors. And uh, I will just read these really quick. I won't force anybody else to do so because I know everybody else loves doing it. We are brought to you by Sonar, a scalable, intuitive, and comprehensive ISP billing and operational support system. Learn more at sonar.software. We also have tower coverage. So tower coverage is your RF propagation system to empower your network, real-time data metrics, enable your coverage area, reaching your customer base, and more. The industry's best RF propagation mapping system allows website integration for customer sign-up and pre-qualification. Use this data to scientifically plan network expansion and help your WISP succeed. I can't help. I always have to add emphasis to scientifically. It's such a a magical word for me. I just think back to Mr. Wizard. But you can get your free trial today at towercoverage.com. All right, man. That's all of our sponsors and stuff. Dot com. So let's jump in. Uh, first thing I'm going to say is, uh, Alex, we haven't talked to you for a while, so I'm curious, what are you doing with yourself these days? 
Yeah, so I am running a new company, uh, Madrone Technology Group, out here in the Portland area. We've got people uh, all over the West Coast uh, and down to, into Florida. We're doing infrastructure, connectivity, MSP. Um, so if you're looking for a good deal on some of your standard subscriptions, uh, Google, Microsoft, uh, 3CX, we're here to help. If you're looking for Fortinet solutions, SD-WAN, uh, co-location, private cloud, we can help with that too. All right, rock and roll, man. I am. Uh, I was determined to uh, shout you out today, so I'm glad you were here to actually do it <laughs> the right way because there's no telling what I would have said or made up or what it would have come out of my mouth. But Alex, uh, good guy, hard worker, reliable, has struck out on his own, so hopefully uh, we can help... Uh, Help you make the dream stay alive. I had a very pleasant experience getting a 3CX license through you, and I'm sure everybody else would as well. So give this kid a shout, and I'm sure we're going to put some additional details in here at the end for Alex. So also, while we're giving people shout-outs, I'm just going to quickly here say that uh, Colin, one of our regulars inside of the uh, Little Brothers with Slack, he's been on the podcast a couple of times here and there, fellow Texan, He's got his uh, blog rocking and rolling nowadays, and so he looks like he's pretty regularly pumping some stuff out. I think uh, the last little thing I saw was um, kind of a routing comparison against multiple platforms. So jump over to that guy's blog and check it out. If you guys, listeners, people inside the Slack, whatever it happens to be, if you've got some cool resources out there that you'd love us to shout out, let us know. Right? I want to I wanna promote you guys. I want to pump you guys. I want to build the, uh, the community up however we can. Cool. You guys ready to jump into uh, some of the things that have happened? Excellent. Silence is accepted. Exciting things. <laughs> so we had, uh, I think the last time we talked, we talked about Rider OS version 7, release candidate 1 came out, and we were interested in that. And in the last two weeks, we've had release candidate 2 and 3, so I'm expecting 4 anytime soon. Apparently, we're on a weekly release cycle now. But it is... I think... Didn't they, like amend release candidate three and like add more stuff after they already had release candidate three out no i'm not sure i just saw that like uh, i was checking the well, release weird. notes and it was like it didn't show like release three a and b it just kind of had it all in one so you you might be right there yeah because i remember it, release candidate three came out and then shortly after like really early in the morning somebody in the slack group shared the like zero tier announcement and it was like Release candidate three, but with a timestamp at the end. So I thought that was kind of interesting. They're, they move, they're moving really fast, but it's hard to tell like when stuff's coming out, and there's a lot of new stuff. Yeah, it's not just little little things like we're getting this working, we're getting this piece work. It's like whole new, brand new features are. I mean, yeah. they're there's popping them out like you know, like the way I eat Tic Tacs, just one after another. Bam, bam, bam. <laughs> so they're they're really coming out there. So let's dive in a little bit. You already mentioned one, but that one I think uh, deserves a little bit more time to talk about. So let's save that one right at the end of the uh, the new stuff that came out. So I saw, uh, let's see, let's take a look at three, anything particular. Well, uh, one thing of note is uh, Andrew Thrift, uh, our resident Kiwi turned Australian, uh, Australian, if you will. He uh, has been doing a lot of testing on version 7. I know he's really been pumping it hard on the CRS 300 series, and he's given his stamp of approval. 
uh, as early as RC1, he's saying that uh, MLAG is really stable. He didn't necessarily say, hey, throw this in production, but he said, as far as he can tell, it seems really stable in all of his testing. So very promising results for you folks that are really looking for MLAG. Nick, aren't you doing a little MLAG with it? Haven't you been doing a little testing as well? Yes. <laughs> That's the biggest thing I was excited for, like, I'm not, I'm not so willing to run the beta routing software, but when it comes to like switching and MLAG and just some VLANs, like I'm more willing to put that into production depending. So Release Candidate 1 actually was solid for a while, and then he posted in the Slack channel that they had an issue where it stopped forwarding traffic and they had to toggle the bridge to get it working again. But since the Release Candidate 3, I guess it's been, that hasn't popped back up yet. So Excellent, man. That's cool. So it's running pretty solid for you. Yeah, I mean, I just have two three seventeens mm-hmm. for, um, and then uh, a x eighty six appliance, and then a couple CCRs, and I haven't had a single hiccup. Like speed tests are pretty amazing. Um, I'm trying to do some um, more diverse traffic testing to really try to fill those pipes up. Um, but everything's been working flawless. Like. Latency is very, very low, like failover, cutover stuff, pulling the cables out. Everything just works pretty flawlessly. I didn't have any of the same issues on uh, RC1, but I didn't leave it like in production. It's just kind of sitting in the lab right now while I'm figuring out if this is worth taking a chance on or not. But <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I think once people say, hey, this is looking solid in this release candidate, give it a little bit of runtime. Make sure that as they're doing additional release candidate, because... Only thing that um, worries me a little bit is that they are adding some big chunky features really fast, and I would just hate for them to, you know, put one in that kind of steps on top of the reliability of one thing or the other. But I'm sure the the Microtech guys listening are like, uh, you know, like grimacing, thinking, well, you know, we've separated these things so far out that one is not really going to step on the top of the other. Um, this is just me being paranoid about putting things into production. That's all. So yeah. your mileage may vary. I'm just not a very brave person, especially in my old age. Well, it's, it's hard because like, uh, I do have some other hardware that I got shipped to me for testing and they're like the Dell, uh, the Dell like force 10, I think is what they used to be, but they're like, uh, they support all different kinds of stuff. They've got a, um, their own stacking, but it, doesn't behave like some of the cheaper switches so like if the master get like dies the slave just picks up the master responsibility which is pretty nice but you know the the power draw on it and stuff kind of makes it Mm. difficult Mm. and then all of a sudden the release candidate came out and i had some 317s and it's (laughs) it becomes really compelling when especially if you do a dc conversion on them uh it's very tiny power requirements and to get Mm. like something that is you know, not terrible on the stacking side that doesn't just die when the master goes down, like getting some high availability on layer two, you kind of have to go into like data center series switches, which usually have way more ports than I need, like considerably more power draw. Um, so it's like right on, right on the border where it's, it's almost worth it. Cause it's just, you know, MLAG. I mean, it is, it's, I'm, I'm not saying like MLAG is simple, but it's basically LACP with some syncing. So, I mean, there isn't a lot that can go wrong, especially if like VLAN trunking and tagging and all those things still work as they're supposed to. Um, it's, but I haven't put anything out in production yet. But it seems you, very uh, stable. Are you running VLANs over that right now? Yep. Okay. 
nothing, uh, nothing uh, Q and Q or anything. Just basic. Uh, um, I'm applying VLANs, ingress and trunking them to a CHR, but everything works fine. I've had no MTU issues. I was a little concerned about that at first, uh, but I have a Proxmox host that is passing a um, LACP interface to the CHR, and I'm getting like full capacity. Everything seems okay. No weird latency. Full MTU. So, so far, so good, but it's still in the lab for a reason. Are you using multicast on your Proxmox? Uh, currently, no. Okay. So, hard to say how that's doing with multicast traffic? Yeah, not sure yet. I know they had some issues a while back with the uh, CRS where it would uh, allow some of the multicast traffic to hit the CPU and the thing would fall over. Hmm. Um, so, I'd be curious to know if they've got any of that coming back up and when you kick on the m lag stuff i mean I'm, I'm sure this is like obvious to most of you guys it doesn't it doesn't um it doesn't pull any interfaces out of hardware forwarding right keeps everything in the asics yeah and, and uh, you know the configuration is actually really simple because you're just adding the uh you have to put the pure ports and set that up but you can do that over lacp as well for redundancy but then when you actually do the lacp configuration you're just uh, in the CLI, adding one extra field, which is like the MLAG ID. So for like backups and restoring on a failure, it's a lot easier than trying to get somebody to walk, like somebody that's not very experienced to try to reset up like a Dell replacement switch. Um, I'm still not sure about putting it in production yet, but it's it solves a lot of problems and it's a lot easier to fix when something does go wrong, you know, lower power requirements. But they're moving really fast, uh, almost uncomfortably fast on the release camp stuff. <laughs> it's hard to gauge what's going to happen. You know, it makes sense. Go ahead. Is the configuration for the MLAG, is that all done CLI still, or did they pipe that over to the Winbox config? Or The only thing that uh, I think is not in the, or the only thing that's in the CLI right now, I think, is the MLAG ID on the uh, bonding interface. Okay. There's nothing in the GUI yet for that. You know, you were talking about the the features moving fast and they're really releasing stuff. It makes me wonder if they haven't already had like development completed on a lot of these and they were just waiting for something else, right? They're, they're mm -hmm. like, they, yeah. they had all these little uh, pieces ready. They're just waiting for this interstitial piece to, to complete. And now they're like, pow, 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 being able to layer them through. <laughs> They at least have the idea of what they wanted to do in version 7 for years because the common response to feature requests and bug reports yeah. was, oh yeah, that's going to be added or fixed in version 7. So they said, oh, we have a new kernel. We can build version 7. What do we want to put into it? <laughs> you say that. I don't think there was a lot of uh, uh, industry support for SMB uh, <laughs> built into Microtech. <laughs> Uh, so I think sometimes they just think something is cool, so they'll uh, they'll try dropping that out. Not that I'm a, a, an opponent of that. I was just uh, making a little observation there. Priorities. <laughs> All right. So let's see what else is in the change log. Anything interesting? So what I think Ollie said at least on RC1 that uh, it messed up a lot of the Wi-Fi stuff for him on mm -hmm. like an OmniTix and so maybe some of the older hardware. So again. Mileage may vary. They're making changes really fast, right? There's other minor fixes and improvements, right? It's, you know, listed in every one of these release candidates. So there's no telling at what point they're going to, you know, 
fix whatever Ollie was running into here or there. So again, right, release candidate, you kind of get what you um, pay for here. They're also talking about improved stability when using Cake and FQ Codal, which I am particularly interested in. I'm looking forward to that for, say, my MDU uh, to be able to oh. improve the user experience out there when you're squeezing these guys down. Uh, routing filter stuff. <laughs> We're talking about Wave 2 a little bit in here. Fixed support for NV2. I haven't talked to anybody running uh, mm. NV2. That's their proprietary uh, TDMA protocol, right? That's yeah. yeah. So one thing that's interesting is, like, if you look at a lot of Ubiquity radios, those are all still, like, single-core, like, cheaper cpus they've got some like hardware filters and stuff on board but microtech has like hardware encryption chips and like multi-core arm presses processes on some of their wireless stuff and so I'm, I'm curious as stuff goes on in the future and now they've got a bigger development staff i'm hoping they maybe revisit some of their wireless product lines and you know kind of get up to speed with some of the the other competitors i mean there is some stuff for like wave two but you know, it's still pretty pretty far behind, but I'm curious if they're going to put any priority into the wireless side of their products now that they've got, you know, a new operating system, they've got more staff, um, a lot better hardware than some of the other radio vendors. I'm really curious how that is going to turn out. Well, we already saw with the, um, the new and improved, was it Cap XL, right? I think people have been asking for that forever, right? Like an indoor... AP that mounts on the ceiling that looks nice with you know, a lot higher gain antennas and things like that. So, I mean, they're they're listening for sure. How fast the uh, chip shortages are going to allow them to spit out hardware? Mm -hmm. I guess that's probably another story. Huh? I think they've yeah, been bitten before because I remember at previous moms they would announce some future products and then people would get pissed off and they didn't show up for a year. So I have the feeling that they learned from that and uh, just don't want to have people yelling at them, asking for products. So I think they've got stuff probably staged and planned and um, they just aren't as willing to have people yell at them about it uh, as they used to. So that's that's me guessing, not necessarily knowing for sure. Let's see. Um, some of the other stuff uh, was, I think... It is, I think uh, Miller was digging through the forums and found out that it is a separate package, but added support for running Docker containers. I'm assuming this is mm -hmm. exciting. That's awesome. A lot of the nerds <laughs> out there, a lot of nerdgasms. Um, <laughs> me, I'm just going to kind of sit back and wait because I'm sure there's going to be some really interesting use cases. What's the first thing that pops into uh, both of your minds? If you could run a Docker container, well, I guess step one, explain what a Docker container is for just the hardcore network guys. You want to take this, Alex? Uh, sure. I think the simplest way to explain that would just be virtualization, right? You've extracted the operating system components and put them off to the side so that you can run other processes in an isolated environment. Um, so one of the things that I saw that I thought was a little funny, somebody was like, oh, now we can run a BGP routing engine in Docker <laughs> that performs better than the native one. <laughs> um, more practical application there might be, um, you know, something like Unimus, where you want to 
do your router backups and it's a small site, you don't have the infrastructure in place to put that somewhere else, it might be nice to put that there or potentially run core where you're able to proxy that backup back to your main infrastructure if you've got a lot of routers out and about. Right. So like um, you could run like a monitoring uh, system mm -hmm. agent inside of it, right? So if you need a remote yeah, agent, agent out in that network, it could run in like a Docker container on top of um, one of the, but Docker running as a container and like you said, it's an isolated environment, but it still shares components of the underlying operating system running it, right? So if you're going to run mm -hmm. a container on a MicroTik, don't you have to do some like compiling for the operating system, like based on the base operating system that's going to run on? Yep. But <laughs> they're getting very heavy into ARM. And so that makes a lot of this stuff simpler for compilation. Um, and it's not really that big of a deal, but uh, I'm hoping people don't treat these routers like servers now because it's not going to run <laughs> a full-fledged network monitoring system. Agents, yeah. Um, but there's there's a lot of things in the forums that people complain about or have been complaining about for a long time that this kind of solves those problems without them having to write their own package. One common thing that I see is like um, multicast DNS. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, like with Unify and stuff, you could just go in and um, I think it's called Avahi is like one of the common used mm -hmm. MDNs providers to be able to get that between different VLANs to be able to isolate all of your IoT stuff but still have access from your smartphone. Um, people have been asking for that for a long time, and now being able to run Docker, that would be pretty easy to just kind of pop that in and then put it on the appropriate networks. Um, for me, which would be really cool, is the potential for management where you could you could compile like a Golang binary just on the router, and then you would have an interface uh, connected to the container that you can use for management, and then it kind of opens up a lot of possibilities for automation and like management. Um, but you know, it's not server hardware. <laughs> you're going to be limited on uh, like disk performance. You're going to be limited on CPU performance compared to a full-blown machine. I'm sure people are going to get really carried away with this and try to run mm. like a PBX or something crazy <laughs> on it. But you can do that if you want. Yeah, which you. I mean, but think about it. Like um, uh, PBX for a small office would cons like if you've got like five uh, desk phones and virtually no calls ever go through that thing. I mean, I think that would actually probably run pretty light and easy don't you think it just depends i mean there's there's limitations on docker and like the networking stack and there's i don't know something critical like a, a phone you know service that mm -hmm. that you need that you're going to depend on for calls like you probably don't want to run that in your router but there's tons of little stuff you could put in there I'm sure people might try to run like Sericata or something oh, in a little Docker container. That's a terrible like you could idea. do a lot of interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah. So Sericata is like uh, an IPS, IPS idea sort of thing, and um, mm -hmm. those things. <laughs> it runs pretty heavy. It runs pretty thick. So uh, maybe that would be a solution for running on like uh, CHR, which uh, CHR you're already really going to be running in that on a virtualization platform. So why would you? nest that inside of that when you, if you were on a virtualization platform you could just run it next to it because they're they're getting more multi-core arm processors i'm not saying it's the best idea obviously you'd have to test oh, it and yeah, see yeah. what happens but it's just um you know instead of running another box or another pie like there's some some small things that you can kind of embed in the router uh, chr would be more interesting especially if they get driver support to run bare metal and not need a hypervisor like there might be a few little things you could run um, on there if you want to get bare metal performance, but it's just 
something that you have an option to play with now that didn't exist before. I mean, Meta Router, people have tried to run like, um, I think it was like OpenWRT or something, and you could find a way to run like Node or PHP in there to try to like build some stuff, and that was just terrible, and it crashed all the time. But now you have an actual containerized platform just in the router. That's going to be really interesting, especially for managed router services and software like that. I guess you could probably run like Pi-hole or something in there, right? That would be yeah. probably a good use. Or uh, like you were saying, you were talking about uh, DNS. If there's some limitation of the DNS uh, implementation they have in Microtik, well, you could just turn it off and then run whatever you wanted in a yeah. container. You, know, you could run Bind or Power DNS or you know whatever those whatever your flavor of choices. You could you could do that. I was also thinking um, if you didn't like Webfig you could probably write some interface that your customer could use, right? It could be extremely customized. And instead of hitting the web server on the Microtik, they just go to the Docker container, right? And hit that web service mm -hmm. that then interacts with the router. And uh, you could, I guess, make like Fisher Price easy buttons for them if you wanted to, where they click, click, and that's not cloud hosted, right? You don't have to worry about, can the client actually get all the way to the cloud to perform this stuff? Also, you could probably have a container running a suite of really advanced troubleshooting tools so that if mm -hmm. there was ever an issue, like that client lost connectivity, right? The client could be constantly monitoring uh, its connection or vice versa. You know, anything you can imagine, it could be monitoring that stuff, perform all kinds of complicated testing, aggregate that information and send it to you. Or, um, you know, if you have a, a problem customer, that's saying, oh, well, I'm seeing this and that. Well, traditionally, all we're able to monitor is from, you know, the middle of our network to that client. Now you could do it in the opposite direction and, and maybe even um, pick up on some additional stuff inside. So, I mean, the world is your oyster, right? Oh, and plus, since it's a container, you just give somebody the, like, template. You have them upload it, run a couple commands, and that's it. They don't have to... You know, because especially um, people who are very much into Docker and containerization, it's always like a a religious thing on like how small can I get this <laughs> container? So they go down to like Alpine images and they 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 do all the compilation and then strip everything down to try to get the smallest possible container size. You know, but that you know it'll use less hardware, less storage, so you can run some complex stuff on there. But for me, it's more it's it's really compelling because. If you're going to do something like router management, you would have the option if you can run your own code on the router to use things like WebRTC or just any sort of encrypted lighter tunnel than a full-blown VPN to have full bi-directional communication with the router basically on something you can just kind of drop in, get it network connected. Um, so there's, there's a lot of interesting possibilities that I, I'm excited to see where this goes. I could see somebody creating well, a really interesting SD-WAN package, like make an appliance out of a Microtik, and then the, the Docker uh, container is doing all the testing, right? All the management for the SD-WAN stuff and maintaining all of that. So you don't have to try and include some crazy Microtik script together. You can actually have something sophisticated written doing all I, I could just sit here and come up with use cases all the time. I'm sorry, I interrupted you, Alex. What did you, you have, bud? Oh, I was just going to say, with, with the large amount of uh, router, Microtik router platforms that are ARM-based, and this being available on the ARM, Raspberry Pi has been around for a long time now. So, um, like Nick was saying earlier, with the support that's already been there, 
so many things have already been compiled for the ARM architecture and with the Raspberry Pi in mind. And it's a similar size box with core count and, and horsepower and whatnot. So if you have everybody that's tried to pare that down, these Alpine images, it just makes it no brainer. Um, the other thing I was going to say is uh, circling back to the PBX idea, you've got um, like the 3CX session board, a controller that usually goes on a, a site to kind of get rid of some of the issues that you run into with NAT and whatnot. So that's like the perfect use case. You throw mm -hmm. something like that that's got the Raspberry Pi support and you put it on your, your router. You don't have to have that separate box to do that. Um, but with that comes, you know, a lot of power and therefore responsibility. <laughs> uh, if it's as easy as just running some container image that can be distributed around the world, all of a sudden you've got the possibility to power a botnet. And they've already been dealing with that in the news this week. Um, I imagine something like this, it would be very easy for somebody to say, oh, I put a container here that has access to the router and I didn't properly mm -hmm. firewall that. And so somebody was able to get in and they kind of have a back door mm -hmm. and you've been able to distribute this, this, uh, you know, worldwide botnet that runs on a micro tick. And if you can throw anything in a container and you have root access to the router, all of a sudden you can deploy containers everywhere. So yes, it could be powerful where you have a worldwide you know, monitoring system or something, but you could also do a lot of harm pretty quick. I think it's uh, the, the idea too, because that occurred to me as well, right? If there's like a zero day exploit and they start taking mm -hmm. over all these micro ticks, then you could have a little container that runs some kind of crypto miner, but monitors the CPU so that it has just <laughs> enough CPU to keep passing packets. So nobody's the wiser. You can just take advantage of like, you know, tens of thousands of uh, little worker nodes to do all that computation for you. If we're going to see in-core routers and maybe bigger, it could be a lot more lucrative. One of the things that happened early on with the crypto mining, people would inject in the hotspot some code that would use the browser of everybody coming into, let's say, a coffee shop. You get on the Wi-Fi, you hit connect, and now your browser is mining cryptocurrency while you're sitting there in the coffee shop. <laughs> so, I mean, this sort of thing does happen, right? Well, it sounds like you're just paying for your free Wi-Fi, that's all. Yeah. Just, put, just hide that down in the acceptable use policy. <laughs> I thought my coffee was paying for that. <laughs> no. Hippie. Got to pay your mm -hmm. way. All right. So, um, what are the other things that uh, Nick Arellano and consequently I, I saw also Nick Braulio, uh <laughs> I would say Nick Braulio was more spicy about it than excited. It was a really fun thread. It was like 130 messages long. Uh, but it's zero tier has come to uh, Microtech apparently. And I actually looked at the Zero Tier website and they've got like a big banner up at the top now on Microtech. So they're yep. uh, very proud oh, of that announcement. So um, I had heard of it, but um, I hadn't really dug into it. And they've been, so it's a VPN technology of sorts and they've been adding a lot of them really quickly um, into the hardware, which is interesting. Uh, all this stuff coming out very quickly. So what's up? Uh, what is your guys' takes on it? Zero tier, 
Yeah, so uh, Nick had mentioned a minute ago that with a container you could run something that allows you to, you know, have a lightweight VPN or something. Zero tier is interesting. Um, it's got a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, architecture, so your traffic isn't necessarily going directly back between the server and the client. If you have, let's say, um, kind of a think of it as like a peer-to-peer -peer switch that's globally distributed, so you could have five users that are connected into that um, virtual network. And now, all of a sudden, rather than going through like a VPN concentrator or something, if Nick and I are closer than Greg, then our traffic can go more directly between us rather than, let's say, Greg is the one that you know normally hosts the VPN service. Um, the downsides I've seen with that are you're not going to get the same level of performance that you might expect out of other technologies. Um, you look at WireGuard, for example, it's very performant and lightweight, uh, but it's a little bit harder to maintain, manage, set up. And so there are pros and cons to each approach, but the idea that this zero tier is available, easy to set up and can, you know, more directly connect uh, machines together um, that's that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, what do you think, Nick? I'm super excited. <laughs> so uh, when you do VPNs at scale, especially for road warriors, the it's always, depending on the technology you use, it's always hard to um, either you let all traffic over the tunnel or you try to split tunnel stuff. And when you try to use a lot of the Microsoft protocols, I know of some people who do some kind of gross PowerShell scripts and stuff when the tunnel comes up to put the routes in but being able to centrally control um like routing and policy especially uh there is there wasn't a lot before that could do things like that um i've been using ipsec with the cisco xauth uh plugin or whatever it is mm -hmm. uh, for a long time because that lets you specify what routes get sent to the client that way only management traffic gets sent uh and this is really important for um, like remote workers who have uh, VoIP software, like you don't want all the VoIP traffic to go through the tunnel. And if the tunnel drops, it drops their calls. So being able to selectively give them subnets to access over the VPN and then let their VoIP software just use their normal internet connection. Um, it, it's uh, a lot nicer to be able to have that type of flexibility and control. But then when you get to something like zero tier, it's a whole different beast because not only is zero tier you know, you can do layer three over it, but you can send layer two over zero tier. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like an IPsec mixed with VXLAN type of magic proprietary thing. Um, that's kind of amazing because you can do um, one of the things that they bring up a lot, the buzzword of SD-WAN, but you kind of have limitless options on what you want to do on the zero tier backbone as far as, you know, you can run MPLS over it and VPLS tunnels and all kinds of interesting things um, over that network. But you have really granular control over policy. So not only can you control what protocols and what types of like layer two frames are allowed to even go over the zero tier network, um, you can also tag clients in specific groups. Um, and this is all managed centrally. So uh, when somebody connects to zero tier and you log into the management area, you you can explicitly approve or block a device. But you have all this control 
in this web-based GUI on what routes they're allowed to have, very specifically what types of traffic, and you can control it each direction. So it gives you a ton of control. It is very complicated. I'm still trying to go through all of the rules engine and really try to understand um, you know, the most efficient way to manage this, but just the number of tools that you have with something like zero tier is kind of insane. Um, and it, I think the free tier covers like 50 nodes. But where that gets really interesting is um, uh, IP Architects on Stub Area 51, they did like a, a quick example of like how this would be super useful where they're using um, like uh, OpenSense, I believe, to basically run them over zero tier and do BGP. So there's a 50 node limit, but those nodes can be routers that route between each other over zero tier, and you're, the nodes are only counted as the routers that are doing the routing. So um, this is really useful for things like blending on-premise and cloud. So being able to have virtual machines in AWS or DigitalOcean or whatever provider, and then having a, a router VM that connects to zero tier and distributes those routes, it's very easy to blend infrastructure um, whether it's physical or virtual. And so to me, that's super exciting. Uh, and the fact that it's just on Microtik is really interesting, and it's going to get better um, when it's available on the CHR so that you don't have to run either like a Linux VM or another routing software in the cloud to kind of get this all connected. But it's going to really simplify um, some of the things that I already have deployed. Um, you know, 50 nodes is kind of a lot for, you know, small to medium infrastructure. And the pricing is pretty um, reasonable as well as you get more devices. I mean, that's a, that's a lot to say, but I'm, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> so Zero Tier has like uh, an open source version, right? It says free self-hosted. Well, non-commercial use. Oh, really? It says open source wanna, free self-hosted controller. controller for non-commercial use yeah. cases. Oh, Okay. But that's just like the surface. You can also do like multipathing. So with zero tier, if you've got multiple upstream connections, which is uh, where a lot of the SD-WAN like buzzword comes out, is it doesn't matter what upstreams you have available, whether it's LTE, whether it's you know physical fiber, like doesn't matter. You can actually multipath over all of these sources when they're available to get um, more throughput over zero tier. Um, the documentation is pretty good, but it's it's pretty crazy that they're jumping on some of these and some of them uh another another one that people were asking about that sparked the conversation was um tail scale and i was curious if microtech was ever going to jump uh into some of these vpn solutions just because of some of the licensing for some of these i wasn't sure how that was all going to work being able to just kind of put it on the router um as a package that they support but um yeah tail scales the thing that sparked the whole heated debate <laughs> not zero tier itself <laughs> so just to circle back on zero tier really quick so i can run it free for non-commercial use but after that it looks like it's fairly affordable but in the end zero tier is connecting out to a service somewhere on the internet right these zero tier folks are going to be hosting some kind of servers right because they, there has to be some negotiation yeah. between these things if i'm not running mm -hmm. like in a data center somewhere then that's what they're talking about the self-hosted one right you're going to be running the I guess the uh, communication server for, I, I don't understand the nomenclature they use, or I haven't dug into it, but you're going to, in a data center somewhere, you're going to have a piece of software running that all these clients are going to connect to, to communicate with, to find each other, right? 
Mm-hmm. And so if you're using the enterprise version, or I guess the paid version, it looks like they do that uh, hosting for you, right? So it's just out on their cloud somewhere. But even the free tier, the 50 node one, it's you can just use it. And it's it's globally distributed. It's highly available. Like, it'd be kind of crazy if that went down. And that's mostly for, like, the, you know, the policy enforcement. But, you know, a lot of these connections are peer-to-peer. So once you kind of get the connection up, um, things just kind of work. Um, and it's all open source. Um, a lot of the, the individual components are pretty lean and can be distributed on their own. Um, I mean, there's always a risk that it could go down, but the way that they're distributing it, um, it would be pretty rare to just, you know, you can just use theirs. They also don't necessarily hold your hand on self-hosting either. Um, and it, it is a little more complicated than um, a lot of the other like off-the-shelf stuff that people are used to deploying. There's a lot of little pieces to understand. Um, my only complaint is the the GUI doesn't look so great in the mobile apps. Uh, also have some to be desired. So it'd be interesting to build something over the top of it. But at the end of the day, I just need connectivity for routers to then exchange routes with each other. So, gotcha. uh, Well, even the professional level is only like 450 bucks a year, which is, I mean, that's not bad. And they're saying up to 500 nodes that connect in. So whenever you're saying that you can dictate very granularly the policy of what's allowed, that's going to be stored on the centralized server. Is that pushed out to clients as they connect in and like that policy is installed on software client or is that, I mean, it has to be right because you said it's a peer to peer technology. So if it's not looping through the central server, it has to be pushing those policies out to the users, right? Yeah, I'd have to look at uh, the details. I don't know at that low level. I don't know if you have any more information on that, Alex. But Oh, I was going to compare it. If if you want kind of, a, hopefully I do it justice, but if you think of it more as like uh, moving people around instead of packets and you have different airports, um, the airports and the planes being more peer-to-peer with how you move your packets around, but you've got air traffic controllers that are sitting back and they're not touching any of the packets, but they're telling things where to go and what's allowed. Um, And that's the idea of their controller that they're hosting for you. They're acting as air traffic control. um, And the packets are flowing between the different airports, right? (laughs) Um, I always get, I I think there are a couple of things that you probably have to be careful with. Um, One of those is on the security and uh, auditability logging side you are throwing your packets out across the internet. They're going through unknown nodes. And so uh, there's some inherent uh, trust that they're leaning on that, you know, their code's doing the right thing. Your packets are encrypted, that they're not being sniffed on by some third party somewhere in between. Um, Early on, you could log into the admin side of the controller and there was no two-factor authentication. So imagine all of a sudden somebody gets your credentials, they log in, they have full access to your whole VPN infrastructure. So now you can just say, oh yeah, these nodes are totally a part of this and they can see all the traffic. Hmm. Well, you probably don't want that. Um, I don't know what they have now, but it seemed like early on at least there wasn't a way to truly log and audit what traffic is passing. So the rules engine is hard to understand. And if you make a mistake, you might send packets that you don't want to 
you know, you thought you were sending packets from a server to a server and that was it. And your clients didn't have access to the server that you didn't want them to. But misconfiguration, you don't have your standard firewall in front of these nodes. You have two computers that are able to talk to each other more directly through the zero tier, tier uh, VPN. And so if you don't have those rules configured properly, you could leave yourself vulnerable. And what's to say that uh, those mistakes are being logged and that you can flag that as, whoa, things are talking that shouldn't be. Mm. Um, so that, that seems like a little bit of a concern. And the tagging is pretty cool and it seems powerful, but uh, a lot of enterprise networks have the idea of a central directory like Active Directory where you say, all right, well, these are the employees and these are the groups they're in. And these employees with their group membership can get access to these application servers based on firewall policies and the VPN and whatnot. But I don't know that there's an integration there between the directory membership and the tagging in the rules engine. Maybe there is, but that could be a, a way that they expand. Um, but I don't know, for personal use, I think it's an awesome technology. And I think that, you know, you've got a lot of options to send things back and forth. There are a lot of like games, for example, that require layer two connectivity. And all of a sudden, this is very easy to spin up and, you know, a couple of people can play games across the internet where they weren't able to otherwise. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. That's cool. I see there's some Ansible roles for zero tier. Installing on targets. Oh, well, if Zero Tier's got a, a feature-rich API, then you're, I mean, you could easily automate that stuff. Sure. It does say that, I mean, assuming the software works, um, everything is end-to-end -end encrypted, so all routes or anyone else uh, along the Zero Tier network cannot look at the peer-to-peer -peer traffic. It's fully end-to-end -end encrypted and audited, um, and they have plans to implement some things like forward secrecy, but... You know, with, with the complexity and the more security that they put over this network, it's going to be a little bit slower. Um, but, you know, assuming everything is continuing to be audited, which is great why it's it's an open source, non-proprietary product. It's a lot easier to trust that when people are regularly auditing that and they've got people who specialize in cryptography looking at these things. So um, it looks pretty good, but there's always a risk. I know a couple of years ago they had a, uh, blog post about how they were looking at their encryption and the techniques and the, that they had some uh, lighter level of encryption and maybe not as secure as they wanted it to be. So they're working on a complete rewrite. I assume that they've made progress on that. Um, yeah, so the idea is that it's encrypted and, and that anything in between wouldn't be, have access, but um, there's always a possibility, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I'm curious how um, I'm curious how how Microtech is going to work with the like hardware encryption chip and everything like that because um, you know if, if you if it encrypts on zero tier and then you would just if you were really security conscious and you, you had to be mission critical with the communication you could always run IPsec or something inside of it. So I'm curious how that is going to perform. Um, I haven't actually tested it yet. Um, I want to upgrade some of my equipment. Uh, I was hoping they would come out with more CPU architectures than just the ARM and the ARM64, but um, I'm curious if it's fully hardware offloaded or if it's currently being CPU processed or how that works right now. Mm -hmm. 
The other thing that I ran into a while back, I was running zero tier. Uh, I was on the road with a laptop, staying at a hotel, got on the Wi-Fi, and connected the zero tier. Zero tier connected up just fine, but some traffic was just intermittently dropping, and I had a really hard time with the architecture, with it being peer-to-peer, troubleshooting the connectivity. Um, I think that there was a firewall somewhere between some of the traffic that was dropping um, and I think it was routing around that some of the time. So it, hmm. it's interesting. Normally you're able to you know, run a trace route and see, oh yeah, something's dropping right here. Okay, well, let's get into it and fix the problem. But with it kind of dynamically routing around the internet, it makes it a lot harder to troubleshoot when your packets aren't flowing. Hmm. That's interesting. So you feel like um, throughput is going to be kind of a limiting factor on maybe some people adopting this? I mean, if you look at, um, I mean, I can't speak for Microtik because I haven't tested on Microtik, but running zero tier with a lot of other like Linux VMs, like there isn't really a lot of um, overhead as far as like bandwidth. Like when I tested it before on just like a Linux virtual machine, I was getting my full cable modem subscribe speeds, which was like 750 some megabits CPU wasn't too bad and if the encryption chip if, if all that's offloaded on the Microtik like you should probably get similar to wire speed I mean obviously at scale with bandwidth that's not realistic mm-hmm. but I, you should easily be able to get a couple hundred megabits of traffic through it that's cool I mean and that's and honestly if you're like if you're just talking about road warriors or something like that, that's way more management than they're going to need. Yeah, management for sure. But yeah, like your average road warrior, they're really not pulling that much off of the corporate network. Now, if you're talking about connecting router to router and peering them, then you probably are talking like about... Like data center stuff. Yeah, interconnect. you're probably talking about yeah. a little bit higher volume move there. So uh, that seems mm-hmm. like it would be more of a limiting factor. But if you're, you know, if you're a road warrior, then it's installed on your laptop. So it's taking advantage of, you know, your core i7 or i9 or whatever happens to be, whereas, you know, on a microtech it's just running off the the ARM CPU. Not to say that that's, you know, anything to sneeze at, but comparatively, you know, it's a big difference in horsepower. I want to say that on a one gig connection, I was only able to push a couple of hundred megabits per second over zero tier um, and then hop over to something else more performant, you know, get a lot closer to that gig. Um, so server to server between clouds, some of that might be pretty limiting. Um, but I guess it depends on what you're no. doing, right? Like say, uh, right. say you're doing database synchronization, right? That's not mm-hmm. heavy throughput. Even if you're moving a lot of data, just MD. that amount. Well, none of the people, I, well, uh, I take that back. I was going to say yeah. none of the people I work with, but I work with some behemoths now so yeah that actually probably would be a problem for them but well the, your average joke. the other issue there uh I, I don't know that there are any sla guarantees that you can establish with zero tier so uh the the database might not be doing a lot of megabits per second but it's definitely going to be sensitive to latency yeah. and jitter and packet loss and things like that and if you're really needing to transfer and record those database transactions in real time 
you could run into some big performance issues there. Hmm. Fair enough. So maybe uh, a tertiary connection. <laughs> if all else fails, <laughs> mm-hmm. you go through the zero tier tunnel. Interesting. Well, we're talking about uh, Microtech stuff. Uh, was it last week? No, this week. It's still it's still part of this week. Uh, the IP cloud service went down for uh, about mm-hmm. a day or two. And for those unfamiliar, uh, it's a feature that Microtech added not so long ago. It's actually really convenient. You go to IP cloud and hit a checkbox enable, and then it registers a unique uh, domain for you. Uh, or not domain, but a, a unique URI on, uh, I think, is it my net name? Something like that? My net, my net name, not net. It's a subdomain that automatically registers based on the serial number. Yeah, there you go. So it's really convenient so that you can have, you know, a dynamic way to uh, connect back into your clients or connect back to your home router. Like you always just go to that. And I usually create a C name for mine that's like whatever I want it to be. Uh, com, so I could just go to that as opposed to the memorizing the crazy URL they end up giving you. But unfortunately, and I'm not sure that um, they've said precisely what it was. Some people said that uh, it looked like they just let the expiration expire, but I think Microtech uh, tweeted back and said, no, that's actually not the case. It's, it's something else. I mean, that's, I think that was maybe like kind of a byproduct or something the way it appeared. Uh, so I'm not sure what's and going they- on there, right? They claimed that there was some malicious uh, actors on some of those uh, those names, I guess, and mm-hmm. it got suspended, and they stopped uh, letting traffic go through it, and they had to reach out to some people and, you know, whatever. But, yeah, there was a lot of people that were quite outraged by that not being accessible, which was kind of odd to me. It's it's useful, but you know, it's easy to do like a a DNS script with a fetch tool, like with any of your DNS providers, like Cloudflare mm-hmm. um, or whoever. I didn't realize so many people relied on that. Um, oh, it's so easy, bud. You just hit a checkbox. Convenient. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I used to use dynamic DNS scripts that would run and just do the API calls. And with the fetch tool, you could register your new IP address. Um, but they made IP cloud and you get your time synchronization and your dynamic DNS and everything all with the check of a box. It's pretty convenient except for when it goes down. Yeah. I know there are registrars like GoDaddy that are notorious for not doing any extra legwork. If they get an abuse report on a domain, they'll just revoke it. Oof. Uh, and so a lot of big sites have gone down because their domain just, goes away out from underneath them. So I understand how they ended up where they are. Um, you've, you've got this deployed to all these routers around the globe that are doing who knows what sort of, you know, you do NAT forwarding to some web server that was compromised or has malware or whatever else, whether it's intentional or not. All of a sudden, their reputation of my net name is attacked and the registrar is going, well, you're doing bad things with your domain. It's hard to say, no, we're totally, you know, on the up and up. And we know what all of the traffic looks like that's going to these subdomains because they don't. Fair enough. So what's the moral of the story here? Uh, They're out 
outcome they tweeted hey you know we take this seriously we're going to work on how we're going to address this i know there are some registrars that are a lot better more expensive but a lot better at not just processing the abuse reports and turning you off right away they'll actually work with you to work through the problem rather than just shut you off so i imagine they're looking into something like that um maybe they could offer multiple domains to have a little bit of you know flexibility there so if they have one domain come under attack it'd be easy to flip a switch and say oh all right everybody this domain's down but if you want to stay up you just need to change it or maybe you're able to subscribe to two who knows but um i like nick's idea of putting in a little extra legwork and using some real dns provider yeah, I would say the, the moral of the story is if you're managing a couple things and you want to use that, like, cool. But if you're if you're selling a service or something that depends on getting some kind of resolution like that, like use a VPN concentrator for management access or, you know, use a something like Cloudflare, which is uh, most of their services are free or most people fall into the free tier. So use a provider like that for DNS resolution and don't rely on, you know, a free service like that, that you know, this could have happened at any point. Um, so I think there's some people who relied on it pretty heavily. And if you're using that uh, for anything, then, you know, maybe VPN access. I would also question what you're port forwarding because, you know, there's a botnet thing going around that people are a little bit conscious about. So um, there's a lot of security questions involved there as well that you should probably look at. I tend to have a style of dialing out with the VPN to a concentrator so that you can get remote access in the opposite direction, which helps for when you deploy routers that are sitting behind that, you don't have to do any NAT forwarding to get into manage the router. There were a lot of people that were like, Microtik, how do you expect us to fix this problem? One of the workarounds was setting your local DNS client to point to their DNS servers directly to get resolution to get into your devices while the domain was down. And a lot of people responded with like, well, we don't have access to, you know, change these remote systems that are using my net name to establish a <laughs> tunnel or something. Um, yeah. And we don't have access to these routers because that was the only way we could get into them. So we can't even change their configuration remotely now. And, you know, maybe circling back around to having that zero tier might be an easy solution for people to say, all right, let's get your management going on a zero tier plane and, you can do it that way, or if you're in a more um, a more sensitive environment where you, you need your uptime and everything else, you should probably be, you know, having the VPN access that's dialing out the opposite direction, so you still have control of the devices. Um, I know Unimus and things like that are great for being able to quickly make changes on your fleet of routers. So that could be a quick way to say, oh, this is failing. I need to deploy some change to all my routers. Well, you have a way to do that that's not reliant on that dynamic DNS. Yeah. Especially if you can run the core in a Docker container, because that's mm -hmm. all encrypted TCP tunnel back to Unimus, and you could <laughs> just go in and fix that through that other option. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. I think uh, for me, the moral of the story is this was a warning shot. Right. So it was down for a day, day and a half, whatever it happened to be. And so you saw uh, what your liability, your exposure is due to this. So um, you've got some ideas you should probably 
go ahead and start uh, testing and then uh, making plans to migrate to something. Um, I, I like it for uh, people that want to just install a microtech at their house and maybe be able to VPN back to their house. Uh, you know, they're going to tunnel their Netflix, you know, when they're on the road or, you know, whatever it happens to be. I think it's great for that. But yeah, like you said, um, it's probably a good idea to do something a little bit different. So previously too, I had like uh, used that in other firewalls. So I could point like other firewall rules. Hey, always allow Greg's house. And that was a dynamic IP. Um, so that's not necessarily a great idea. So yeah, definitely, uh, I, I'm probably going to go with, uh, just the Cloudflare update, uh, on mine to, uh, to adjust cause I use cloud for, for DNS as well. Yeah, their API is really good and it's documented really well. Uh, I did see some people that were doing some scripts and they were using the, the net name to resolve IPs to like auto reconfigure their IP sec tunnels and stuff like that. So you probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> depend on something like that i mean there's nothing that you can do to completely prevent any service right. going down at some point i mean in like this has been kind of a big deal for people using like ubiquity's cloud hosted stuff like <laughs> the the nvrs like all of their cloud hosted websocket stuff was just broken for like multiple days the last couple weeks and like if you're local it's fine but stuff goes down and so the more that you can do on your own infrastructure and have you know multiple options and don't just depend on something that you have absolutely no control over it's probably a good idea at the end of the day you get what you pay for right and so if if you're you know greg or somebody that wants to vpn home and you're using it on your router the free service is probably fine that one time that you don't have access out of a couple of years no big deal you just shrug your shoulders but if you have mission critical things you should probably pay a little bit more and architect it in a way that you're not vulnerable to a free service going offline. Yeah, I, I'm on board with you there. Um, something, I think it was in raving fans, that book, they were saying that, you know, it's like, um, it's all about having people be such a big fan of your product or your service that they tell other people about it. Right. That's the concept of raving fan. And then there, one of the things they talked about was, uh, free services. So if you offer a free service like your business and you get free Wi-Fi, even though you're giving away something free, uh, if it's a service that you're offering, it's still representative of your product as a whole. So when people mm -hmm. say, oh, you know, it's a free free service, you know, free extra thing that they were giving you, um, so you shouldn't expect too much out of it, I, I pivot and say that no matter what, even if you had that expectation, if it's a service provided through this company that you believe in good faith should be working, uh, if there's a failure, you're still going to hold them responsible. In your like in your head, you can't you can't separate the two. So I think mm -hmm. it's still even if you're offering a free service and it doesn't work, I think it still um, can damage a brand. Not that I'm saying that this incident is going to keep anybody from buying Microtech, because I'm going to keep buying it in droves. I have no problems. Um, I just I don't know, man. I don't. I don't let people get away with, you know, free service sort of thing. Like, oh, it was free. You should have, you know, known what you're getting into. I think that's kind of that's lame. I, mean, <laughs> I think if you're giving Wi-Fi somewhere for free, it should still be solid. If you're giving this IP service, and you know what, I this is the first time I've seen it really go down since they introduced it. So 
I think that's a pretty damn good track record, if you ask me, as far as the service goes. Because uh, I've had all the rest of my cloud services give me more fits than this, right? Like, I've lost Gmail more times than I've lost uh, my net name. So, mm. you know, still, uh, I guess that's the end of my rant. <laughs> Eight- AWS CTO uh, famously quoted saying everything fails all the time and they're really big on not what will fail or if it will fail but things fail and that's just how it is so how are you going to plan around that? Yeah, yeah. anything man-made it's going to fail and like when I used mm-hmm. to live the data center life that's what we, that's what my whole existence was predicated on, trying to limit risk right? Mm-hmm. At some point you're going to have a single point of failure because it's either uh, too technically complex to fix it or cost prohibitive, right? If you had endless resources and endless time, obviously, you know, you could probably make some complicated Rube Goldberg device that would uh, make sure that, you know, you never burned your toast in the morning. But um, honestly, something, something's got to give. And usually it comes down to uh, we've spent enough money to make this Redundant enough, but we don't want to spend any more because then it would, you know, because also there's diminishing returns sometimes, you know, when you get down to that minutia. Anyway, mm-hmm. I digress. That's all I had on the list. Do you guys have anything uh, interesting or pressing you wanted to talk about? And those were the things for me. <laughs> I'm excited about where things are going. Well, uh, their staff is pretty padded now with more developers. So once over the stable release, I have a lot of expectations. Not that you know, they don't, but just the way that they're they're moving right now. And I remember at one point I was looking at um, I was looking at something like a train the trainer thing uh, over in their area, and they also were doing some sort of like agile development type course there. So I think mm-hmm. they were like their developers kind of trained up on. Um, you know, all the new hires that they've been getting. So I think their development team is bigger than they've ever had. And so I'm really excited to see what happens. Then it's just going to come down to waiting through the the chip shortage. And then hopefully things are going to be a lot different than, you know, the last couple of years that people have been griping about version 7. Like, it's it's almost here. Well, we've got uh, from the, now until our the next time we talk in two weeks, there's going to be seven more release candidates released. So what's your, uh, what's your speculation on the next gigantic uh, thing that they're going to put out? What are, you, what are you expecting? I mean, they've got a lot of work to do still, just looking at the status on some of the routing. Um, there's some stuff that didn't exist in version 6 at all. Like, there's a lot of IPv6-related things. Um, there's some other um, RFC stuff that I've never seen before. Yeah, but there's there's a lot coming. Um, people are getting a little frustrated because of the whole like Docker and stuff that everyone's excited for because they just want the routing features done. <laughs> Start moving towards version 7 on their infrastructure because there's a lot of really cool stuff that just doesn't work in version 6, especially in the carrier uh, space of things that people want to be able to start utilizing. Um, I think they've got like ECMP working with uh, IPv6. They've got ECMP with MPLS, like a whole bunch of really useful tools that was pushing people to move to other network vendors or, you know, do a completely different architecture that was a lot more um, uh, maintenance burden. 
So I hope they really flesh those out, unless the people doing these features are a separate team, then that's fine. They can keep doing cool stuff. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, how about you, Alex? What's uh, new, different, interesting? New, different, interesting. Um, I've been in the Fortinet world uh, looking at all the different enterprise-level gear, and it's really interesting to see how um, they've got some similar approach to like Microtech, where you've got the same software running on all of your devices. Um, so you've got the OS running on things that are super small all the way up to carrier-grade chassis. Um, and it's really interesting to see kind of the two of those. Um, I, I know that there are a lot of people at Fortinet that don't know about Microtik at all, so I'm excited to see Microtik kind of rise up and become more relevant competition. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been deep into the Fortinet world. They released version 7 faster than Microtik did. <laughs> they've got a lot of great features there. They've equally have you know some issues with uh, software versions that come out that... Um, you know, have bugs and everybody does. Mm. But uh, it's it's been interesting to kind of see how some of the other players do things. So are you spending more of your engineering time on Fortinet these days than any other product? Uh, networking wise, yes. Hmm. That's cool. Is that your uh, product of choice for most of your MSP work deployments in various places? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you? Probably. I mean, was it? Is it like? cost with feature set and support i mean like what is it what is it that makes that the right choice for you they're very uh security driven they've got a lot of what they're calling next generation firewall features that just don't exist um elsewhere um they run up there and all of the reviews and capabilities with palo alto without the price tag um so they're you know given Cisco a run for their money, they're not that much more expensive than Ubiquiti and Microtik, but the feature set that you get there is so much more. Another thing that's really great is um, with Microtik, you're kind of on your own for support. They have email support and forms, um, but at some point you need help with your implementation. And if you're trying to do it on your own and you need support from the vendor, there's not really an option with Microtik and Ubiquity to say, I need 24 hour phone support to get whatever it is that I'm deploying. Um, and so when you're dealing with mission critical infrastructure that is maybe regulated, there's a lot of need for security to be important for your logging audibility, uh, security from a two-factor authentication approach, logging into the hardware, um, keeping track of all of your changes and, and everything else, as well as you know getting into SD-WAN and um, SLAs and things like that. They've really done a great job of um, supporting all those things. That's cool. Sounds like really good rationale. I know in the data center world, we had a decent chunk of Fortinet stuff, and a lot of those guys were guys that had... Um, uh, compliance stuff they had to meet up with, you mm -hmm. know, various regulations uh, that they had to adhere to. And it seemed like Fortinet hit all those checkboxes pretty easily for these guys. So, yeah, that's awesome. And uh, Andrew Fish worked for them. So it's, uh, to me, that's kind <laughs> of the rubber stamp approval. So 
Excellent. Well, let me think. Do I have anything new and different and interesting? Um, I've been looking at Secrets Engines here lately. So I've done CyberArk, uh, their Conjure, which is their open source product, and their Central Credential Provider, PaaS, or whatever you want to call it, and then HashiCorp Vault. And now uh, mm. I've heard people mention Thycotic a couple of times, so I'm looking at them. And Secrets Engines are really just like you're running a server somewhere that maintains all of your uh, passwords and... Um, various keys and junk like that. And it gives you the ability, like generally through APIs to make calls to those at runtime, uh, generally for automation, but you see a lot of people do it for like when they're consoling in devices. And so they use their individual credentials. It'll go out and it'll request it and allow you to log in. And uh, all that stuff is loggable, uh, auditable. Some of those like um, CyberArk, PaaS, they have like this intermediate server that does this cool thing, like if it sees you log into a server, as soon as you disconnect your session, it will then create a new password or key for it, push it out to the server. So literally, you could have 10,000 servers in your environment, and each one has a unique password and key that gets rotated every single time somebody connects to it or service. So that's pretty bonkers to think about trying to keep up with that stuff as a human. So you could only do that with some kind of uh, software package. And so seeing a lot more people mentioned those. And so somehow, well, I know somehow, Mal. um, somebody mentioned it and I was curious about those things. So I started making demos and figuring out how it all worked. And then once you figure something out, you're that guy. So I've <laughs> become the secrets engine guy. And so they like Pokemon. So I got to catch them all. Every time I run into a new one, I got to figure it out. So Vicotic's the next one to add to the list and I'll get that pretty soon. Oh, also Ansible Automation Platform 2.0 is coming out. So it's kind of a re-architecture. So I get to learn all of that stuff and uh, it's interesting. They're um, they're definitely changing things up. So it's just figuring mm. all of that out, and it's um, it's uh, it's still early access. So like the full full meal deal is not really out yet, but uh, it's figuring all that stuff out, all the intricacies of how it's changing, and uh, that's always fun, especially when you get access to the early access stuff and things don't exactly work the way you anticipate them. And there's uh, all of these little knowledge base articles. It's like, all right, you got to follow this one, then this one, then this one uh, to fix this, this, and this. But uh, as soon as we release the the full uh, ready for primetime stuff, I'm sure it's all going to be ironed out. But, uh, you know, it's so funny because I just got my hands around like where I feel super comfortable around platform one. And they're like, uh, hey, guess what? You're going to get to learn all this new stuff. But it's not that different. But it is, but it's not, so. Uh, I guess I've been kind of any that. any big new features you're able to share about 2.0. Um, the big new features are really, uh, I mean the the way it's being redesigned, it's for scalability. So whenever, so I do everything inside of uh, the automation platform, which means Tower, and the new version mm -hmm. of Tower is called Controller. So really, Controller um, is the word I'm supposed to be using, but I'm using tower right now. But when tower runs, it uses a, um, a Python virtual environment and does all its execution inside of there. Um, and in the new AAP 2.0, instead of having just like Python virtual environments where you might end up with multiple to run like older things or newer things or what have you, um, you're actually doing what they're calling execution environments, which are really just uh, containers. So all the execution happens inside of containers. So you can create a container, put all of the components you want specifically for that container, and it's always there. It's always packaged. So um, the idea of 
containers right, as we talked about earlier, is you can you can pick it up and you can throw it on a machine over there, and it's going to run so long as it supports containers. It's just going to run that thing, right? It's it's great. It's amazing. Um, uh, and like if I create a container that works now with this set of modules and things like that, you know, two years from now, I'll still be able to execute that exact same container. So even as my platform upgrades, I can still run my old stuff inside that execution environment. So that's really cool. But really the way, or the, one of the main reasons they're pushing towards that is scalability, right? Like these guys. So we have some customers inside that are like, like huge hyperscale companies. Like we're talking about like telco level where they may execute a job that really needs to spin up a lot of worker nodes. And so now like with containers, if you're running that on something like OpenShift, uh, which is our implementation of like Kubernetes with a whole bunch of stuff rolled in, um, it can just scale, right? It can just start cranking those things out, just start firing from the hip. Uh, the cool thing about it is it'll, it'll spin up all of those. It'll complete the work and then they all just disappear. Like, like they never existed. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's kind of the claim to fame, I guess. I in my opinion, that's the reason for the re-architecture is to make it more scalable for like cloud environments and stuff like that. But you don't necessarily have to be running this stuff in like OpenShift or in AWS or whatever. Um, if you still want to run it in the traditional way, it's just going to use like Podman or, you know, like Red Hat's implementation of Docker, which is Podman. So it's mm -hmm. just going to spin it on Podman on a local machine. And so it doesn't have to be vastly different from what you're accustomed to, to be honest with you. Seems like that might make it easier uh, to get to run reliably. Uh, I know with Python, with different versions and environments, sometimes you run into a lot of trouble getting things to run the way that you want. So it seems like containerizing that would make things easier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Because if you get it, you get all the pieces in there that you want and it runs once, it's going to run every time. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. what else you do. If you want to make... Um, you know, like a, a Cisco uh, execution environment, right? You put all of your Cisco modules and stuff in there. It's always going to work against your Cisco kit, right? If you then have to like use a completely different Python version and different set of modules and everything else to run your Juniper stuff, you just do that in a different uh, execution environment, right? Which is a different container and it never touches mm -hmm. the other one, right? So you never have to worry about them stepping over each other or um, causing issues with dependencies or things like that. As soon as you get it up and working, you don't have to worry about it. You can just keep reusing that. It's also good for testing, right? You want to test mm -hmm. new Python versions, new modules types and stuff like that. You just create a new execution environment, test all you want, um, you know, move that over to dev as soon as you're good with it and then slide it into production and you're good. So it, it makes like a really easy upgrade path for testing all of those things as well. Which all that stuff, that's like, giganto company level stuff so that's stuff that never really <laughs> impacts me or probably most of the folks that are listening i think it's it's bonuses that are cool for them but um you know what i mean that's like hyperscale level problems you know i've got mm -hmm. 99 problems that that's not one of them uh so it doesn't really impact me but i think it i think it will be beneficial for a lot of people mm -hmm. i mean especially when it comes to like um if you don't need like persistent storage or if you need to like take a template file and copy it into a container and then when it's gone, it just kind of nukes. It's a lot because as soon as you run into a problem where you 
you have like a locking issue and you cause like maybe a configuration file corruption or anything, like even just um, file buildup from side effects of things, um, mm-hmm. it starts to get pretty nasty, especially if something is kind of running and you're not keeping an eye on it. But by doing it the container route, it's a lot it's a lot easier to not have to worry about that stuff because if you're not mounting a persistent volume and you are copying files into the container on creation, as soon as it's gone, it's gone. There's no like, there's no weird side effects or cleanup sort of things that you have to worry about. So even not at hyperscale, it just kind of makes things a lot cleaner and easier to troubleshoot when you kind of have like a working golden image and everything is just a copy of that image and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. I think something too that's cool about it is um, you know, whenever I did build demos, I always put up like everything in my public Git repo. Like everything goes into the public, right? Obviously, I protect all of my secure stuff from inside my tower environment. The automation platforms are really good at that. Um, but I'll now be able to like build up execution environments that are doing my demos, and then I can put them up there for anybody else to pull. So they don't have to reinvent the wheel on all that stuff. They can just yeah. literally grab my EE and test it in their environment. Now, is that necessarily the most secure thing for them to do? Not necessarily. Um, right? Don't trust anything that I'm putting together. Especially, don't assume it's going to be secure in all the right ways. Uh, no, no. Uh, we actually have, like, um, uh, Red Hat's putting out, like, these three different uh, kind of golden image execution environments. They're like, here, we're giving you these to build off of. So all of my stuff's going to be built off of that. So they should be pretty solid. But I just really like the idea of that, that I can I can build one and then I can give it to anybody and it's going to run mm-hmm. just the same on anybody's system. Mm-hmm. I used to be pretty anti-container for a long time. Uh, but, you know, I have a Mac. And so, like, when I do development, I used to run, like, MariaDB and Postgres and stuff on my, like, actual machine. Post system, yeah. And so then, you know, over time, I'm like, okay, maybe I'll, I'll Dockerize these a little bit. So now I've got all the databases. I have Redis, like Elasticsearch. It's all just in a Docker container, and it's mm-hmm. a lot cleaner now. Um, and even just being able to have, like, a Docker Compose file in a repo, like somebody else can just jump in. They get the correct version of Postgres. If you use, like, you know, PostGIS or any of the other extensions, like, you can just have it ready in the container. And they don't have to know how any of this stuff works because... Um, even things like the the, the Microtik uh, MTCNA, like when you try to do net install, like you don't know what's on somebody's machine. You don't know like what firewall software they're using, or so it's hard to like if you demo stuff to get somebody to get it up and running the first time every time. And so being able to just like all right, boot up the container as long as these ports aren't taken, like everything's gonna work. Uh, so it, it's it's pretty attractive for that. Um, but there is a lot of complexity involved if you don't know what you're doing. But if you're consuming the container. And all you have to do is install like Docker Desktop and then run a quick command or import it into the desktop thing. You don't have to know how it works if you want to try something out. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think for the developer, it definitely makes sense to do the containers. Um, they definitely have their their place. There are certain places where containers don't make sense. But um, yeah, for development especially, it makes things really easy, and it's it's nice that you don't completely clutter your machine. You're like, oh, I installed this thing to do development, <laughs> and then you're like, ah, do I need that thing, or is this yeah. other thing that I installed affecting this other thing? Is it you know I installed MariaDB? Is that the reason why you know some dependency got installed for that that this other application's relying on? I had no idea. You've got that clean setup. 
So definitely has its place. All right. Well, I think that's all I'm doing. But like I said, I'm at my mom's house. Everybody is back. You probably heard them. I'll probably have to edit them out. Or maybe for fun, I'll leave them in. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> um, so let's stick a fork in it so I can go. I think we're going to play Pictionary. So that ought to be fun. Awesome. Let's see if anybody gets stabbed with a pencil. Um, Nick, if people on the internet want to interact with you, how would you have them do that? They can email me at nick.a at hey.com or you know join the little Brothers With Slack group. I'm pretty active in there. I try to at least read everything that goes through there. It's a lot of stuff that's interesting that I don't have experience with that people talk about. So please, uh, if you're interested and you want to support, jump in that Slack group. Yeah, you're on at least like a two or three snarky common a day diet, I think. So <laughs> you get it in there as necessary. All right, Alex Hart, whose face we haven't seen in forever, but it's lovely having you. Um, well, thank you. How would you have folks interact with you? I'm Alex at Madrone, M-A-D-R-O-N-E dot T-E-C-H. Uh, also on the Brothers Slack. All right, rock and roll. If you want to get a hold of me, I'm Greg at gregsoul.com or uh, contact us at thebrotherswisps.com. It all comes to me anyway. Um, I'm also easy to get a hold of in the Little Brothers Wisp Slack, and that's patreon.com forward slash the Brothers Wisp. Sign up there and get access to the Slack and honestly this brain trust of amazing people um you guys have any questions comments there's any subjects you want us to broach if there's anybody you would like us to talk to if you want to have us talk to you that would be great let's do that um let me know about it don't be shy nick doesn't bite though he does uh look jesus-y right now jesus well, tomorrow. uh he, he definitely has the beard and the hair do you have the jesus six-pack Every time I see him, oh. he's always got that bare midriff, and he's he's ready for the beach. He's got that six-pack. Not at all. Uh, I'm very um, computer-built right now. <laughs> computer-built? So. You got? Yeah. I like to tell people I've got my COVID weight right now. That's what I'm carrying. Uh, oh, that's, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I'll use that one. I did a lot of uh, uh, self-soothing, stress-eating uh, <laughs> in the last year and a half. But uh, I'm kind of coming out of that. Coming out of it a little bit. Uh, so thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for joining Nick and Alex. So talk to you guys next time. Now I click stop. Cheers. And I say it so Tommy can hear it. Maybe next time I'll just start saying this and then I'll start the music so he has to like accidentally.